Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Ali Bakir. Ali is Assistant Professor at Qatar University's Ibn Khaldun Center for Humanities and Social Sciences. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's done some fascinating work focusing on the strategic, geopolitical, security, and inter-regional trends and dynamics of the Middle East, with a particular focus on Turkey's foreign and defense policies, Turkey-Arab slash Gulf ties, and Gulf security. His work is fascinating, it's varied, it's provocative, it's challenging, and he's also done a huge amount of work with media outlets and uh, and think tanks and research institutions. So it's a real pleasure to have Ali on today. So thank you, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Simon, for the invitation. I'm very delighted to be with you. It's an honor. Uh, likewise, Ali. We've been trying to do this for the listeners. We've been trying to do this for, for months now. And first well, COVID, <laughs> COVID got in the way and then various diary pressures got in the way, but we managed to, to get it sorted out. So we've, we've picked a good time. The eyes of the world are on Doha right now. And so the ears of the world are on you, Ali. Well, perhaps the world is a bit strong, yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much anyway. Um, tell us a little bit, Ali, about how you got started in in this. I mean, what what got you interested in in the the research that you're doing and the sort of the straddling of the academy, the policy world, and and the media world with your interests in Turkey and the Gulf and security and and pretty much everything else you're doing, which is so varied. It's it's wonderful. So, how did you all get, how did you get started with all of this? Yes, right. Uh, in fact, uh, I didn't choose any of this, uh, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I literally didn't choose any of this. Uh, uh, let me start by, by uh, giving a little background on myself so that you sure. understand the concept and the, the context of, of how did this happen and, uh, and how it was developed. Uh, I was born and raised in Kuwait. Uh, my father is uh, half uh, Arab, half Turkish. My mother is Lebanese. Uh, following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, I uh, moved shortly to Iraq and Jordan. Then uh, I moved to Syria, where I lived two uh, years. And uh, I moved after that to Lebanon. Uh, I stayed there for around 15 years. And I uh, uh, then moved to Turkey for over a decade, uh, where I worked uh, in a couple of think tanks as a senior researcher and also uh, a senior political advisor for Qatar Embassy in Ankara. So, uh, and, uh, and finally, after that, I moved to Qatar in uh, 2020. Uh, how did this started? I, I, I was not interested actually in the politics or the Middle East, uh, but I found out that the Middle East is interested in me actually. <laughs> uh, when I finished my <laughs> when I finished my high school, um, I wanted to continue as. Uh, computer engineering or computer science in the U.S. And I applied for that. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't uh, uh, secure a visa. Uh, so I was in a critical situation in Lebanon, and I needed to present a paper as a university student in order to, you know, grant my residency in the, in the country. And mm -hmm. uh, I asked uh, my sister at the time, could you please find me some open departments so that I got this paper because the engineering and uh, uh, the other departments were already closed. So my sister found two two uh, departments open. One of them uh, uh, was the political and administrative sciences. So I said, fine, just bring me the paper. And 
when, when she, she brought the paper and I applied for residency, I, I didn't care much about the, the issue because I was planning to reapply again for, for the U.S. But uh, at the end of that uh, year, one of my friends said, since you already enrolled and you are coming to uh, see some lectures, why don't you make the final test? And uh, he convinced me to, to do this. And uh, we were a lot around in the first year in the Lebanese University, around uh, 2,000 students. Um, I did the test and... Uh, to my surprise, I was the top of the class uh, at the time. So I uh, I thought that I should uh, continue in, in this road. And that's how it started. And um, in 2000, I, I think uh, in 2002, uh, uh, I was still in the university and uh, AKP ascended to power, just as a mm-hmm. development party ascended to power in Turkey. Uh, no one was really interested in the Arab world in, in doing research or writing about Turkey because the general perception was that uh, uh, Ankara is a sort of a puppet for the U.S. Uh, and NATO and the claw for, for Israel in the region. So uh, no interest in studying Turkey, in writing about Turkey, even in the uh, academia world, uh, the same also in the media. So I saw a huge vacuum in that area and uh, I decided that... Um, um, I'm, I'm very well uh, equipped and positioned by nature to, to, to talk about the issue, to write about the issue and to make con- uh, an important contributions in this field. Uh, so I focused my effort and work uh, on it. In a couple of years, in 2007, if I'm not wrong, or 2009, I was invited to uh, Kuwait uh, for a conference on Turkish-Arab relations. Mm-hmm. And this conference was sponsored by the Emir of Talit, uh, Emir of Kuwait, Sheikh uh, Sabah, and also uh, the Prime Minister of Turkey at the time, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, they both gave a speech, and I had also a, a speech in that conference, and uh, uh, the Turkish Prime Minister had a quite large uh, delegation with him. Uh, after I finished my speech, which was about how to uh, fortify the Turkish-Arab relations mm-hmm. uh, after decades of, you know, uh, being apart. So I was approached by some members of the delegations, and uh, they told me that they liked my speech, and they offered me uh, some jobs in Turkey. And that's how I moved to Turkey in 2009. And in Turkey, I found also, like the Arab world, it was like a desert in terms of the lack of expertise on the Arab world this mm. time and on Turkey's relations with the Gulf and the Arab countries. And uh, mostly the Turks were focusing on relations with the U.S., European Union, uh, some work on uh, Iran and uh, uh, Turkoman in Iraq and Syria, and uh, of course the uh, terrorist organization, the PKK. So it was a desert and i found out that this is an excellent opportunity for me to shine and i did a lot of uh, uh, good work uh, which uh, uh, attracted a lot of interested people and many uh, at the time embassies approached me to to work as a, a, a senior uh, expert and analyst but i chose uh, qatar at the time and i moved to be a uh, uh, senior advisor uh, on Turkey's foreign relations, Turkey's Arab relations, and also we were working a lot on the senior file. Uh, yeah, of course. My, uh, position there. So this is, uh, in short, how things developed. It's quite a story, Ali. I mean, there's, there's a real 
real number of fascinating points where where your 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 life your career could have gone in in so many different types of directions here and I, i've got two questions if i may one yeah, is sure. why qatar but the other one is it strikes me that there's a a really interesting sort of interplay here between an intellectual gap, as you say, people in Turkey weren't looking at at the the Gulf, and people in the Gulf weren't really looking at Turkey. So there's the the intellectual gap and the policy gap, but there's also something personal there. Was it a personal quest to try and fill this gap, or was it purely instrumental? You saw the gap and you thought, well, someone should do that. No, you're right. Definitely, you're right. As, as I said, I uh, while I was still in the university in 2002 when AKP ascended to power, uh, no one was working on Turkey in the Arab world. And uh, like I said, I was uh, very well equipped uh, to yeah, to address this. Uh, this uh, given my my roots, my background, and. Uh, my interest in the topic. And also at the time, uh, although I was not very much interested before joining the university to study politics, but uh, uh, my family, uh, they, although they were uh, apolitic, uh, means that they, they didn't uh, have certain ideology or support certain uh, party, but they were very much interested in listening to politics. And I still remember that at the time they were listening to, you know, uh, BBC radio, they were listening to Monte Carlo, Um, and they were following the uh, the Palestinian issue very closely. So I think that this is how I got general knowledge and information about politics when I was young. And by default, uh, I had this in my mind, in my background, then I, I was able to develop it. But of course, yeah, there is something related to my personal uh, character. And there's also the... The fact that I saw there is a gap uh, in academia and on the media and sure. in the policy uh, circles in this issue, and I I uh, took that uh, uh, opportunity and worked on it. Of course, the Qataris at the time, uh, when I when I was uh, offered a job by several embassy, it was because of a report that I have prepared in 2012 while I'm working as a senior researcher in Turkey about the uh, Syrian revolution, and uh, at the time this. Uh, was so that I don't say the first uh, detailed uh, report in the issue, one of the most uh, first detailed report in the Syrian issue. And uh, uh, it included a lot of uh, insights from within Turkey. At the mm -hmm. time, it was very hard to bring information from inside. So many, uh, uh, several uh, uh, embassies got interested and they offered me a job. <clears throat> a couple of them were from the Gulf region, and uh, Qatar was one of those uh, uh, embassies. So I, uh, the Qataris had interest in Syria and had interest also on developing and strengthening the relations with Turkey following the Arab uprising. Mm -hmm. And the Turks at the time, as I said, they were also looking into opportunities to develop strong relations with some Arab countries, including Qatar. So it was uh, an excellent opportunity. I think that Uh, chance uh, chose me at certain point, and also I had some uh, preferences. So this is how I ended up in the sure. uh, working on the uh, on the issue. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say there is no gap in looking at uh, 
Turkish relations with the Gulf and, and vice versa. Given all of the work that you've been doing over the, the past few years, you've done a, a wonderful job of, of plugging that gap. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah. Pleasure. But, uh, you are just, you are you are you are certainly right. But to my surprise, I did a project with one of my friends last year, and uh, the aim of this project was to see why there is. Um, I mean, the, the gap is still there, and uh, although the, uh, uh, there are uh, um, more uh, Turkish young scholars, uh, uh, you know, focusing on Turkey-Gulf relations, but still less than what it should be. So we did a project and we studied the issue academically, and we found out that the scholars, the Turkish scholars, working on topics related to uh, Turkey and uh, the Gulf region uh, in terms of uh, master's degree and PhD, very, 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 very low, which is yani, quite surprising. Uh, Why do you so think that is, think that we, Sorry for interrupting. Um, Why do you think that is? Why is it so low? You are, this was one of the main questions which we asked when we saw the empirical results. Mm. I think that... Uh, they are still interested more in studying the Western relations, mainly uh, uh, Europe and the US, maybe because they are quite familiar with it, maybe because the senior researchers or academicians, their main body of knowledge is related also to the US and Europe and Russia lately. So um, the Arab region and the Gulf region is not quite important in this sense to them. This is might be one reason. but. Other reasons might be also related to the uh, Gulf countries uh, themselves. Maybe um, Turkish scholars don't feel that comfortable in, in, uh, in these countries, or maybe they are not so open to um, the production of knowledge. There are quiet reasons that, yeah, but it, it's a speculation at current sure. moment, unless we, ha we, we study it uh, thoroughly and maybe we make some uh, personal interviews or surveys. We, know the, the right reason and why it's still law. Sure. Well, I look forward to seeing how all of that develops because it's, uh, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. go to your, your PhD work, if I may briefly, please. So you did your PhD in, in Beirut. What was it that you were looking at then when you were there? Yes, and this is uh, one of the surprises no many people uh, knows about. Uh, yeah, like I said, when I was in Lebanon, you know, I don't know if you have an idea about Lebanon, but the Lebanese society is very polarized uh, among uh, different uh, critical issues. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this polarization also uh, reaches to the academic community itself. So when I was in school, I wanted to make my master's and PhD in Turkey, but unfortunately, I rationally decided on purpose not to choose Turkey because I was afraid that if I chose this topic and some of the professors in the committee were pro-Iran, for example, then they will not judge me uh, objectively and judge my work uh, objectively, uh, in my opinion. So, And uh, if I took something on the U.S., it would be the same, something on Europe, the same. So <clears throat> I thought that maybe I should pick a subject that motivates the professors to assist me more objectively and look to the issue from the academic point of view rather than the, because everything is politicized uh, in Lebanon um, in general. So 
I looked to several topics and I decided that uh, China was a perfect topic to choose. Uh, mm-hmm. I was also interested in China. China was also rising at the time. And uh, I thought that <clears throat> by taking China, they would see more objectively because the topic is not politically sensitive and it wouldn't touch uh, any of the, you know, the red lines or their orientations. So I did indeed took... Uh, my master's uh, was on China's global oil, oil uh, diplomacy. <clears throat> and also my PhD was on the future of China in the international system, a study on the uh, soft power and peaceful rise uh, concept. Mm-hmm. So basically my PhD was on China, yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. And obviously that's got such a big impact on, on the work that you're doing now and the questions that are playing out in... Of course in the Gulf and, and in, in, in the Middle East more broadly. So after that, then you did all of this policy work and you've done all this, this media work, but while you've been doing that, you've continued to do some fascinating work on, on Turkey and on Gulf relations. So if I can take you back to one of your earlier publications, Ali, please, you had this, this really interesting piece, um, in the International Strategic Research Organization, which looked at Turkey's power capacity in the Middle East, limits of the possible. And obviously this is this is in the immediate aftermath of the start of the uprisings. There's not very much work being done on this. So what was it that you were arguing in this piece, please? And then how do you think Turkey's engagement with the Middle East has, has evolved over the past decade? Yes, uh, in this piece, I worked with a couple of uh, friends and also uh, some uh, research assistants. The idea was that uh, Turkey was new to the Middle East, as I said, and they Mm. didn't have much knowledge on it. Uh, However, some uh, Turkish uh, uh, officials, uh, intelligentsia, and even the professors thought that they had enough knowledge on this. So we, we... also tried to test this hypothesis and uh, to see how the um, Turkish capacity is oriented in terms of a bigger role for Turkey in the Middle East. Because when the Arab Revolution started, um, many in the regions and beyond, in the region and beyond, they were looking, (coughs) sorry, they were looking at Turkey as a model in terms of, you know, being a, a Muslim country and also being a democratic system at the same time. And uh, they thought that uh, uh, this model, if I may say, might work very well in the Arab uh, region. And uh, uh, from our side, we were saying that um, Turkey is not, it's still not well equipped to, to uh, position itself as a leader to the region. And it, it should work more on some of the uh, uh, maybe weak points, and uh, we tested this empirically also uh, when we um, did a survey on the uh, Turkish Foreign Ministry, and uh, we found out that out of all diplomats in the Turkish Foreign Ministry, maybe maybe a couple of them uh, were talking Arabic. So mm. that uh, also wa- was a surprising uh, outcome because if you want to engage with this. A critical and important region, and you don't have qualified people who can at least speak the language or understand it. This would be a very difficult uh, mission to accomplish. Um, but since then, of course, <coughs> uh, 
Turkey developed its capacity uh, in in many ways, including the the foreign ministry. They opened later uh, um, an institute to teach languages, and they have now uh, quite a number of diplomats who can speak the language, and they got engaged more culturally and politically and economically with the region. So it's it's. Um, it's, uh, Ankara now is in a much better position than before, but I think that they, they need to work more on this issue and focus more on how to develop uh, the relations with the Arab countries and the Arab public, not only on the political level, because this level, I think it's the weakest in the chain, but mostly on the cultural and uh, people-to-people relations, mm-hmm. because this is where you, in, whenever you invest in th- on this level, then you will be assured that your relation with the region is stable no matter how uh, fluctuable or changeable your political situation is. So this was also a theme of or a message uh, from several messages that we wanted to deliver at the time. Sure. That's that's really interesting to, to hear you say. And I can think of a number of parallels with uh, with, with other states that, that I've spoken to people working on them and the the language issues remain a, a perennial problem, I think, for for diplomats. So maybe there's there's something structural in the in the organisation of foreign ministries. But um, that's maybe a conversation for another time. Um, Ali, building yeah. on that, then building on the work that you've been doing on on Turkey, you've obviously looked at a number of different angles here. Um, a number of different aspects of of Turkey's foreign policy and not just in terms of the making and the implementation, but also the arenas in which this plays out. So, for example, you've you've been looking at, at Libya as well in in different in different ways. But I want to ask you a little bit about Russia, if I may. And I know you've touched on Russia in some of the bits of work that you've done. But I wonder if you can just reflect a little bit on the state of Turkish-Russian relations, please, because it strikes me there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of prima facie analysis, but this is perhaps a little bit lazy and not necessarily informed by by detailed analysis of things. So do you have any, any general reflections on that? Sure, sure. I, uh, I have been following also how uh, the other, um, between quotations, if I may say, or the West in, in particular, yeah. Uh, Western experts are looking to this relations. They think that things are either white or black. They have, we have seen also people asking to uh, kick Turkey out of NATO because of relations with, with Russia. And uh, um, other experts, they are saying Turkey left the West because of its, its relations with Moscow. But I think that this is uh, this is a kind of um, uh, exaggeration. It is a misperception of the Turkish-Russian relations. Um, it is a lazy thinking, as you said, at the best, because the Turkish-Russian relations are very complex and complicated, and they need deep understanding. They need uh, they need uh, the experts to understand uh, geopolitics uh, and interdependency when it comes to economic relations. Uh, it also needs um, Western uh, experts to look at the map and see where Turkey is actually positioned uh, between uh, the continents and uh, how this 
force the 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 uh, Turkish elites and Turkish decision makers to um, take steps, unusual steps or untraditional uh, measures that not necessarily fit in the Western narrative, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it serves Turkey's interests and protects also uh, Turkey's uh, independence and uh, uh, Turkey's. Uh, uh, goals at the end of the day, because we have we have seen Turkey seeking uh, more autonomous foreign policy, and they need to assure that being with one camp is not against Turkey's own interests. So, when it comes to relations with Russia, Turkey depends highly on Russia and, and um, on several levels, including the gas and oil, for example. Most mm-hmm. of Turkey's gas and oil comes from. Russia, and this has been a problem during the last few years, especially after the eruption of the Syrian revolution. Uh, it had also um, political implications because it constrained Turkey's options and uh, uh, it prevented Turkey from taking actions that would serve uh, uh, its uh, interests and uh, protect the sovereignty. Uh, and we have seen this quite very well after the two. 2015 challenge when Turkey uh, shut down a Russian jet uh, against the background of its Moscow's involvement in in Syria, and it found uh, itself alone in the field. Um, And uh, Russia slammed sanctions on Turkey, and there were no uh, uh, concrete actions from its Western allies. So uh, this alerted the Turkish decision makers and elites that they should follow a different policy, uh, not meaning that they will uh, join Russia, but also to take into consideration that there are um, issues that they should be more careful about them. And uh, one of those those issues is the relation with Russia. Russia, by the way, is uh, historically speaking uh, the primary foe of Turkey. And uh, uh, they defeated also uh, the Ottomans uh, when they were at the end of their their, uh, era. And uh, this had uh, implications on the memory of the Turks on several Mm -hmm. uh, uh, occasions. So, uh, no, Russia is not an ally of Turkey. Uh, Russia is not also a strategic partner. Yes, both of them have some common uh, interests in some fields, but also uh, they counter each other in many theaters. For example, uh, uh, Turkey countered Russia in Syria, and because of the Turkish intervention in 2019-20 particular, uh, uh, Turkey stopped the uh, uh, Russian control of all Syria, at least uh, in the north, and also Turkey faced and countered Russia in Libya, for example, uh, which is NATO's uh, southern flank, and stopped also the expansion of Russia in North Africa. Uh, Turkey countered uh, Russia and Russia's influence in the South Caucasus when it supported Azerbaijan against Armenia, which is a satellite state of Russia and hosts uh, Russian uh, military base. Uh, so, um, Russia, Turkey, for example, lately also stopped Russian ships from crossing the the, uh, the straits towards the Black Sea. So uh, it's a very complicated uh, situation and complex relation. It is uh, a kind of uh, hard to uh, uh, see it as white 
or black. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I said, uh, I think that uh, this kind of complicated relation will stay for quite some time. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really interesting, and that that nuance that you flag up is is so important when looking at this type of of question and this type of. Um, complex relationship i think that can't just be reduced to simple binary black or white as you say so um thanks for that ali we've we've been speaking for quite a while but i'd like to just end with a, a discussion of one of your more recent pieces if that's okay please and it's a piece that you had published in in third world quarterly titled islam and international relations why is there no islamic ir theory and this is a, a really fascinating piece. I think it's a really important piece that speaks to a number of very, very serious issues in the study of the region, in international relations more broadly, and also the the current of decolonization that is that is prominent within the academy, particularly in, in the UK. So I was really, really delighted to see the piece published and to see you you doing this this line of work. So, can you tell us a little bit about it, please? What what's the what's the main argument? What are you trying to do in it? Yeah. So basically, uh, we have been reading during the last few years some of the articles, scholarly articles on the region, and as you uh, know. Uh, uh, articles related to IR theories uh, mostly depend on one or two theories when you want to expand on that and you take a case and try to explain it through that uh, theory. However, uh, me and some of my colleagues reach a conclusion that it's not always accurate to to use one of the uh, very well-known international uh, relations theories and try to explain the dynamics in the region through it. It seems that although uh, uh, um, it might look good from the from the first sight, but when we look to the details, we think that some of those details might have been twisted to fit the theory or the theory is not completely uh, um, explaining the situation. And we have seen many occasions through which the theories failed to explain uh, developments in the third world in general and in the Arab world in particular. So we thought that we need uh, to contribute this field. And of course, there have been many famous scholars uh, working on this topic for for decades probably. But we thought a new contribution to Islam and international relations would be appreciated. And I work on that issue, given that I have a little background uh, on the topic. So I um, found out that there are some uh, some issues related to, indeed, Muslims when it comes to this topic that prevent them from developing uh, uh, IR theories. And uh, there are, of course, uh, other uh, reasons that are mainly uh, related to the Western world. Mm-hmm. One of these issues, we found out that uh, uh, the Westerns were very uh, much well equipped because of their, their, their supremacy, at least uh, after the um, Australia, uh, 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 if I may say, era. Uh, they were ahead of the uh, Muslims at the time, and they had the leadership in terms of developing uh, IR theories and trying to imposed them on the others, including the third world. And the Muslims at the time, they 
you know, their Khilafah collapsed and they started to seek national states. Uh, so they were very busy in, in do- developing these uh, newly born states. So they were in a kind of, uh, in a kind of a chaos, if I may say. They were not uh, focused. They didn't do what they, they didn't know what to do. And some of their experts wanted to follow the Western line in mm-hmm. terms of education and uh, Culture. Others said we should go back to our roots. So this um, resulted in a confused elite, which uh, neither developed their own theories nor uh, uh, digested the existing IR theories. So uh, we found out that also, as usual, language is a barrier to this uh, issue and uh, uh, Muslim scholars who want to work on uh, uh, Western I have theories they had to develop the English language to be able to express themselves uh, uh, very well. And uh, this will take much more time from them and effort. And they will end up also not following their own work nor contributing to the IR theories. There, there are the uh, gatekeepers, if I may say, of the uh, scholarly journals who are not usually open to foreign contributions unless they are uh, in line of the Western narrative and the Western uh, IR theories. And so there are a lot of, uh, and you have also the political systems in the Arab and Muslim modules. Uh I think that they, it's not for their interest to support a genuine work in Islamic IR theories because uh, any of the genuine uh, uh, work in this issue might end up, uh, you know, uh, discrediting their, their legitimacy and their uh, authority. And that's why they are pretty much uh, comfortable with the current situation right now. And they are uh, and uh, they are indirectly undermining the, the scholars and their ability to develop knowledge in this sense. So uh, this is just a, a quick summary of uh, uh, what we concluded uh, through this uh, scholarly article. And we, of course, suggested some ways to try to overcome this dilemma in the future and i think that that's really valuable having that that type of approach to uh to moving beyond some of the problems in the future can you just give us maybe the most the for you ali the most important thing that people working within the ir of of the middle east and looking at the role of islam within ir should be doing with regard to to avoiding some of the pitfalls that you flag up is there something that you think scholars should do moving forwards or is it just a case of thinking critically about the very foundations of the approaches and theoretical positions that that we're using well uh i may say some of the uh, the the points that i suppose there should be known uh for example it is uh, really counterproductive to work on the region without knowing the background of the region in terms of Islam, in terms of Arab culture, in terms of um, uh, diversity of the region, in terms of the, you know, each region has its own uh, particular speciality and characteristics, if we may say. If you don't take uh, such details into consideration, uh, you will end up failing, uh, uh, explaining the whatever phenomena you are following in the region. You might, in shape, put some IR theory and try to explain the topic, but at the end of the day, the, the, the results may, might, might not uh, explain the situation very well. So I think that 
some of uh, uh, these uh, works should really, uh, uh, like we said, I mean, they should think critically of the region and they should take uh, its characteristics into consideration when they uh, try to work, whether the normal work, whether scholarly work, whether media. Mm-hmm. We have seen, for example, also lately uh, some of the campaigns against Qatar, and they, they reflect some, in my opinion, uh, uh, European problem, if I may say, rather than highlight uh, the Qatari problem. And uh, this is, for example, a, a small example of the misperception and uh, uh, misunderstanding, if I may say, between cultures and civilizations and how it can be developed into a political crisis and or even uh, cultural wars or uh, um, you know, problems between between different civilizations. Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, giving more attention to uh, details in terms of uh, uh, the background of the region, uh, religion, uh, culture, uh, inter-people uh, relations, all these will uh, help any scholar to advance its work in the right direction. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's just a work that might not or would probably end up not explaining the phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. Thank you so much. And Ali, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, I've learned a lot from reading your work and listening to your analysis. And it's been really, really fascinating just hearing some of the, the things that are going on behind that analysis. So thank you so much for your time just now. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, dear Simon, and I'm very honored to be with you, and hopefully we can meet in person very soon also. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. A huge thank you to Ali for his time just now. You can find him on Twitter at Ali Bakir. That's at Ali Bakir. And as always, thank you to you for listening. Please do take care of yourselves. Comment, share, subscribe, etc., etc. And as always, until next time.